Welcome to The Porch Cast, the podcast where we talk about being a creative business owner and all the crazy ups and downs that go along with that. I'm your host, Kristen Sweeting, and I can't wait to get started. Well, hello, and welcome back to The Porch Cast. I am so excited for today's guest to be on with us. Uh, Lindsay Brian Podvin is a financial therapist and works with couples and individuals through money mindset issues and struggles and money anxiety. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today because I love talking about all of those topics. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I'm I'm happy to be here. It'll it'll be fun. I you know this is my favorite thing to talk about. So. Yeah, I love it. Well, do you want to give us a little background on you and a little history of how you mm. kind of got to this place of working with, with couples and with money anxiety? Yeah, of course. So I'm a therapist by training. My background is in social work and I had specialized in depression anxiety and anxiety for many years. And money stuff came up. No surprise to anybody who's ever felt stress or anxiety that money might be intertwined there. But in my training as a social worker, we were not trained on how to help people with their money stress. We were really trained to say, you know, if somebody comes in to you and says, I'm stressed out about money, our job is to go, okay, well, why don't you call this 800 number and they can help you with a budget? So it was so bizarre that you had these folks coming in who trusted you enough to talk about their emotions and their their heartache and their stressors. And then when they brought up money, I had to say, no, that's not my lane. Um, And then personally, I graduated into the Great Recession. So I learned a lot about money on the fly there. I grew up in a very financially privileged background. So I think I was sheltered in a lot of ways from the realities of money. So when you know I kind of came face to face with my money stuff as a young 20-something, I had to learn really quick. <laughs> and as I learned, I found out that I loved it. Like the more I learned about money, the more the more empowered I felt and the more I realized that it wasn't hard or complicated, but they, you know, people in the personal finance space, they use jargon to make you think it's hard and complicated. So I kind of had that in the back of my head. And then I had these clients coming in who were stressed out. um, And I wanted to blend the two. I wanted to say, look, if you're comfortable enough talking to me about your money stressors, like let's do it. So I sought out some additional training in financial social work and in financial therapy to ethically provide that type of service to my clients. And couples just kind of happened organically. You know, I was working with a lot of millennials and Gen Xers. Um... And a lot of them are partnered or married, and it just made sense to see them both. So that's like the long and short of, of it. I'll pause and take a breath now. I love it. Yeah. No, I, I graduated about the same time and was like 20 years old and married and figuring out my life. And yeah, it's like a real thing. The the recession and stress and kind of the all of the dynamics that go into all your relationships too, mm-hmm. when money anxiety mm-hmm. and money stress is there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what do you find is the biggest thing that, you know, a couple comes in and they're, they're having an argument about money or they're having stress around it. Like how do you even start that conversation or try to get on the same page? 
Yeah. It's the most therapist response I can give you. And it's that it's not about the money. It's not about how much is coming in and how much is going out. It's about what associations we have with money. It's about our backgrounds with money. It's what we believe money is or isn't and what it means about us. So we have so, so much nuance in our relationship with money. And then when we bring that into a partnership, you've got two potentially competing backgrounds trying to kind of square this this thing together, but they don't have the language to use. Most schools in the United States don't provide any sort of financial literacy training. Most parents don't sit down and have like, you know, the dollars and the cents talk with their kids the way they might the birds and the bees. And, you know, research shows people are more likely or would rather, I should say, talk about death, sex, and politics than they want to talk about money. So it's like super, super off limits. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of people I work with feel like they can't talk about it. It's going to make them a bad person if they prioritize, you know, growing their working on their budget or growing their business that somehow they're going to turn into an asshole or they're going to, you know, do something that makes them unlikable or unlovable. Is that something you find with a lot of people you work with? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Particularly with women and with people in helping or healing professions. So studies also back it up that those people who are women or who were raised as women um, and people who are in helping healing professions. So think your teachers, your estheticians, your social workers, right? Anybody kind of in those fields we tend to internalize statements like you can't be a good person and make good money. We tend to believe that making money or wanting to make money means you're greedy. So we have to undo a lot of baggage there. Uh, yeah, I'm actually, it's, it's interesting you bring up those specific things because I had been, you know, sitting with all of everything that has been happening and seeing my, my fellow therapist friends in private practice, like, you know, have their phones essentially ringing off the hook because everybody is ready for therapy, which is great. You know, I'm a huge, huge proponent of therapy. Um, but then they're also burning themselves into the ground. They're seeing 30, 40 clients a week and they're charging almost nothing um, because they feel like they have to be good therapists and good therapists can't make money. So my next kind of venture is going to be helping out my fellow private practice therapists to work on their money stories and create sustainable fees so they can cultivate profitable businesses. Yeah, totally. No, I see that with a lot of therapists I work with too, of it's or or coaches or anyone who really cares and wants to give back or artists. It's like, no, I feel like I need to give. I feel like I need to make everything super accessible, which that's a beautiful thing. And also you know, we are, we have to take care of ourselves too. And in order to be able to pour back into other people. Yeah. I mean, the the starving, I mean, there's such an interesting dynamic and you know, this being in the art world, right? That there is, you're either a starving artist or you're one of the very few superstar artists, but like, there's not a lot of room in between, which is ridiculous. There's definitely room to make money. There's definitely room to make money in ethical ways. Like, you can absolutely be a creative person and pay your bills and then some. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, as everything's been happening recently, there's been, you know, I've done a lot. So I've done a lot of money mindset work. I'm excited to talk to you about this because I feel like a lot of money mindset work that is taught to us is another form of spiritual bypassing or 
is just like kind of a rehashed version of a lot of the stuff that we're against. And so like, how do you kind of be like, okay, some of this is good. And some of this is bringing up new challenges with like, is capitalism a good thing? Is this a good thing? Like, where do we land with all of it? So I don't know if you like, if you've had those conversations, I'm sure you have, but yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yes. Oh my gosh. So I have so much to say on this topic because what I have seen happen over the past, I would say fairly recently, like the past three or five years is that there has been an increase in people trying to kind of help in the personal finance realm, because for so long, the personal finance realm has been dominated by white dudes who use a lot of jargon and use a lot of shame techniques, right? So like, you know, people who say things like you're stupid if you don't have an emergency fund and you're an idiot if you have any debt. And that kind of language obviously isn't going to make you feel warm and fuzzy and try and get in touch with your numbers. So then we kind of saw like, when did that book, The the Secret? Spirit or the universe come out. But like whenever that book came out, we saw people kind of come out of the woodwork and go, oh, here's a different approach for people with their money. So it seemed like such a welcome relief to have these people come in and say, it's actually not about shame and restriction, but they went so far into the other direction with the spirituality that they absolutely engage in spiritual bypassing. So we we know, and if you don't know, spiritual bypassing is when you omit real life stressors and pains and heartaches and in the name of spirituality. So it would be things like if you prayed harder, you wouldn't have depression. So when spiritual bypassing comes to personal finance, it sounds like put everything on a vision board and your dreams will come true, right? So here's, sorry to tell you, you can make yourself a beautiful vision board and it will probably feel lovely and it will probably help with motivation, but creating that board doesn't mean that you're going to become rich and be able to manifest everything. So in our, in our culture, we have a really hard time living in the gray zone, right? We like binaries. It's black and white. It's good or bad. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So my belief set is that spirituality and science coexist. So when that comes to our money, it's spirituality and data coexist. So we take some of that money mindset stuff, but we also pair it with what is the reality in your bank account? How much are you bringing in? How much are you spending? And are there some mindset barriers that are preventing you from raising your fees or from like dialing back your spending that are getting in the way? And if so, we can address those. But if you ever work with someone who's only mindset or only data, you're going to run into a wall. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Well, I'm glad that you said that. Cause I, yeah, I have this whole thing of like, you have to be able to take pieces of both of it and combine them and look critically at all of it instead of being like only over here or only over here. Cause I've definitely swung back and forth in my lifetime with money too, of like this yeah. approach and then this approach and then kind of finding that place in the middle right. where it's like, yeah, vision boards are super inspiring, but you also need to look at your budget and figure yes. out what it costs to live and like yes. not be afraid of your numbers. Yes. I love it. Well, what, what's kind of a place that you tell people to start? Like if they're experiencing a lot of shame around money, they're afraid to talk about it there. It's starting to enter, like hurt their business, hurt their relationships. Where do we start? Mm -hmm. So when we start first, I, I usually just normalize how, how it makes sense that they seem 
overwhelmed or they're, you know, they're embarrassed that they don't know this stuff. I mean, so many of my clients, one of their biggest questions is, is this normal? Are we doing it right? We want validation that what we're doing with our money is the right thing. And because money is so taboo, we actually have no clue how much money our neighbors are making and how much they are spending. Just because they have a nice car doesn't mean they can afford it. Just because they have a, you know, a car that's falling apart doesn't mean they have no money, right? We, we can't make these gross assumptions about people based upon how they present. So, I mean, and that goes, that goes across the board, but especially with money. So when somebody is working on their money shame, first, just acknowledging that they're not alone. It's really hard to know how you're doing when we don't talk about it, which is why I'm such a proponent of things like pay transparency for folks who are traditionally employed. So just kind of normalizing it there and then kind of starting with the basics. And I really think there are just three pillars to personal finance and there are nuances and details within each of them. But the three basic things you need to know about money is one, are you living within your means? Meaning are you not spending more than you earn? Number two is do you have a cushion for the short-term future? So that could be an emergency fund. It could be saving for a vacation. And then number three is, are you investing in your future? That looks like retirement and life insurance and potentially paying for long-term care for your parents or if you have children for college. So I know it sounds like a lot, but when we look at those three pillars we can usually say, which is the most important to you right now? And for most people, it's going to be the, am I, am I spending within my means? So just getting to know the numbers of, of what is coming in and what's going out each month is a great data kind of starting point. Totally. That's super great advice. Cause I think a lot of us, or at least I know for me in my business for a while, I was like, if I look at the numbers, I'm going to get scared and I'm going to give up, you know? Totally. And that was the fear mm-hmm. is like, if I, if I will, I'll be so disheartened that I'm not making a certain amount of money that I'll just like throw in the towel and I'll give up and like, I'll just, you know, eat Oreos for all of my meals or whatever, you know, whatever it was in my head. (laughs) Right. Right. And that's, that's such a default too. Um, even though I love money and I love talking about it when I'm stressed, I do not look at my numbers when I'm anxious about my business. I do not look at my numbers. And, and that's the other thing that I also help kind of normalize with my clients is that you don't just do like one money mindset workshop and then you're, you're you're all better and you never have to think about it again. It's ongoing work. And so I constantly have to check in with myself. Like, why haven't I done my monthly end numbers? Why haven't I done my projections for the next quarter? Like what's going on that's preventing me from getting in touch with my numbers? So I'm curious about this answer from you because I think like what you said, it's really hard to figure out where we are or how we're doing in comparison to other people because there's no mm-hmm. real like metric or whatever. But what does what is an empowered, let's just take like women right now. What does an sure. empowered woman look like right now if they're empowered with their money? Mm-hmm. What would that kind of specifically look like? 
Yeah. To me, to be empowered with your money is to feel comfortable and confident in that you know what's going on in your financial picture. So you feel like you're in control of your money rather than your money being in control of you. For so many women, and I include myself in it, when we don't look at things, we think we're protecting ourselves, you know, in some way. It's it's a protective mechanism. Avoidance and procrastination has always been a protective mechanism, but it's really, really short-lived. So for women to be empowered with money, it's knowing what's coming in and what's going out and and knowing it in a way that feels good, not feeling stressed when a bill comes due, not feeling anxious when you have like a random, you know, fender bender and you need to get the front of your car fixed, being able to support yourself short term and knowing that you have plans for the future, that is financial empowerment. And I also would include retirement in it because women tend to live longer than men. We tend to live, I think it's seven or eight years longer than our male counterparts. So we also have to make sure that we're saving for the very long haul because we're going to be here for like an extra decade. <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally. And take, being able to take financial care of ourselves into the future, I think is so important. And I feel like a lot of women and we, like you brought this up of, we think we need to be taking care of everyone else. And so with money, have a hard time, you know, taking care of ourselves and being like, it's okay to plan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's okay to plan for our kids to go to summer camp. It's okay to, to plan the grocery bill, but it's not okay to plan for our personal financial wellness. Yeah. Well, and if someone was, is really struggling with, um, like how do you continue to, to live your values as you grow your net worth? How, how does that play into the financial conversation? Um, you know, as people are growing and then it's like, Oh no, I'm hitting the level where I feel like I'm going to become a bad person now. You know, like Mm -hmm. how do you continue to live your values as you grow? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that we have this idea that money is the, is the great corrupter in our society. And I think it's an easy thing to pinpoint because there are, you know, there are certainly problems with capitalism. Um, there are certainly problems with chasing money just to chase money. But, but the reality is most of us self-sabotage as we are growing. Most of us are terrified. It sounds crazy, right? If you were to say like, oh, I want to make 400K, 500K in a year. But as I hit that 300K mark, I stop booking my clients. People would be like, what are you talking about? They're not self-sabotaging. And it's like, there, there is this subconscious thing that if I hit that level, what does that mean for me? How do I square my identity as being a progressive feminist and also making a lot of money. And the reality is we're, we're in this capitalist society. And if we choose to sit out financially, that means that other people are going to step in. And we have seen time and time again, the importance of putting your money where your, your values are. So as you grow... I think it's absolutely worthwhile to make sure that you're paying yourself a salary if you're self-employed, making sure that you're definitely contributing to some retirement, and you're also doing some things for your self-care, whether that's mental health, physical health, whatever it may be. And as you grow, thinking about what are causes that are important to me? Is it important for me to support a political candidate? Is it important for me to donate money to um, a local charity since we know that those dollars tend to go further? So thinking about that, but I also think women need to be careful 
to not give it all away. I often see women as they are growing their income start to panic because there's something weird that you're pointing to. As we become more successful, we're so worried that somehow touching this money is going to taint us. And it, it, it only does if you let it. Totally. I'm glad that you said that because I think that's even a personal thing for me where I'm like, oh no, this is starting to feel scary. Right, right. (laughs) And just being able to, you know, work through that um, as people continue to grow and um, doing that mindset coaching between like making sure you're taking care of yourself and also supporting the things you care about. Yeah, absolutely. So, and going back to um, couples and conversations on money, what what do you feel like is some of the some of the big things that really create conflict around these conversations? It's one that we don't know how to have conversations anyway. That's already hard. So many people, when they're in partnerships and they enter into these money conversations, they already have an outcome in mind. They want their spouse to spend less, or they want to convince their spouse to move abroad. So they already have their outcome in mind and they're trying to enter into a debate to persuade their partner to get on board. (laughs) And that doesn't work for a conversation anyway. So when you throw money into it, it's really, really important that you create some sorts of boundaries when you enter into the conversation. So I love to tell my clients to have money dates, which I know sounds bananas, but it's where when I start out working with my clients, I like them to have them once a week. And then as time goes on, we can back off to having them once a month and then quarterly. But you're going to have kind of a standing agenda item of like, are we are we making our ends meet every month? And then you're going to also decide what else you want to talk about that day. Do you need to talk about whether or not to contribute to your kids' college fund? Do you need to talk about whether or not to buy a new car? Do you need to talk about, you know, can one of us leave our jobs? So picking one other thing and kind of shutting it down after a certain amount of time. Because the other thing that happens with money conversations is they tend to go one of two ways in length. They're either so quick, like, oh, you don't get it. You're never going to understand. Or they're like hours long debates. So I, I, I will have my clients like set a timer and be like, after an hour, after an hour and 10 minutes, like you guys got to shut it down for the day. And that's not about saying don't engage in the conversation. It's just don't burn yourselves out in the process. So when it comes to clients... I say, pick one thing that you're going to talk about, maybe two things on that agenda. And you can always come back to it later. If you think about like a project at work, you don't anticipate they're going to knock out a project in an hour or even in a day. You plan that it's going to take some time. And this is something that is also going to be kind of a consistent on your radar. Yeah. And, and I think if you have two incomes or if you don't have two incomes, it's like, how do we divvy that up? Who takes care of what, what do we share? What do we keep separate? And now with relationships, like we, we get to decide, are we combining our money? Are we not? There's so many different ways to go. Mm -hmm. I think seeing some of those options must be helpful for your client. Mm -hmm. Do you see people doing more non-traditional money combinations now or what? I don't know. No, it seems to be kind of the same split. So the, the three basic ways that couples structure their money are separate. So theirs and mine. Combined, 
just ours or a combination, which is theirs, mine, and ours. And I would say most of my couples fall into the theirs, mine, and ours category. So they each have an account and a shared account or just the the one joint account. I rarely see couples who keep things completely separate, but I have seen it be successful, particularly in second marriages. You know, they've had to have more dialogue about joining finances or not joining finances. So I see that tend to be more common in that particular population. But I would say those are the the ways that I continue to see it set up today. But when I see my couples who have everything separate and they're Venmoing each other every other day, I don't know how they're doing it. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be a therapist and be not judgmental, but I'm like, oh, I'm so exhausted for you. How many Venmo transactions do you have with your spouse? (laughs) Yeah. You're like, that looks more stressful than it's worth. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, was it really important to Venmo that $3 tea? I don't know. Maybe. It gets so, it it must get so complicated just figuring out what works for each couple and having those conversations. And I think you're right that we're, we just have not been like most of us haven't been raised to have difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in 2020, there are so many difficult conversations happening and in our personal lives and in our business lives. And I think a lot of people are just kind of deer in the headlights, don't even really know how to engage. And, and that is like worth hiring a, a therapist for just any time of the year, right? Mm-hmm. So, Very pro-therapy. <laughs> Do you have any, um, any tips for people as they're engaging in hard conversations or anything? I don't know, some money date night conversation tips that you give people? Yeah, I think it's important to keep the, the why in mind. Why was it important for you guys to sit down and have this conversation in the first place? Was it that you have a particular goal you want to achieve? Is it that you want to increase your intimacy through conversations like this? Think about the why and also pat yourselves on the back because very few couples talk about this openly and honestly and regularly in ways that are healthy and structured. So giving yourself a lot of compassion, a lot of grace for when you engage in these conversations. Know that you're not alone in in having tough conversations, but really keep the two of you as a unit in mind as you have these conversations. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I'd love to just let you share with the Porchcast where people can find you online, what you're excited about with your business right now, um, like where, where people can engage with you. Yeah, absolutely. My business is called Mind Money Balance and I'm on Instagram way too much at that handle. And my website is by the same name as well. Um, I would say outside of following me on Instagram, I have a book called The Financial Anxiety Solution that is really a reflection of my philosophy that money is mostly psychological and emotional and it's a workbook style. So you're not just going to get like page after page after page of jargon. It's really about working through the associations you have with money and slowly untangling them so you can engage in and with your money without that anxiety. I love it. I had one more thing that I wanted to ask you because as you were talking about like our associations with money, do you think that money work is really inner child work? Like, are we going a lot back to things we grew up with or how do you kind of, do you work those things in together? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think 
Yes, I absolutely think it's inner child work. And I also think it's ongoing. So read the inner child piece, just like anything else from our childhood, anything under the age of eight um, that we experience is going to be really impactful. So some of those first messages we got about money, whether it was, you know, a friend of ours stealing our lunch money, or whether it was um, a parent or caregiver arguing over money, those types of interactions and associations are going to be a little bit more deep-seated than ones later on in life. That's not to say that a particularly big or traumatic or exciting money event can't happen later in life that impacts you. But of course, those early years are really formative. Yeah. And so having a lot of compassion too, which you've mentioned of just like a lot of the things we are programmed with in our money stories aren't necessarily our faults. They're things that have been in the works for a long time. Yeah. And I I always think with inner child work, you know, outside of abusive parents, our parents or caregivers did the best they could with what they had. And so their money stories that they tried to pass on to us probably came from some sort of reckoning they had to do with money. So if they told you it's important to save for a rainy day, and now as an adult, you have a hard time spending money, their intention might have been, look, we we never had an emergency fund and we were always kind of feeling like we were living on fumes. So I want to impart to my children the importance of saving. And then when you internalized it, you took it as I'm not allowed to spend money. So just also kind of forgiving your parents in that scenario can be really helpful knowing that they they were trying to cope with their stuff too. Totally. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I loved this conversation and just excited for people to connect with you and your work. And yeah, just excited for all the things that you have going on. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much for having me on. This was fun. 